Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the official Warlord Games podcast. Uh, my name is Brad, and I'm the host of Warlord Games's podcast that uh, talks about some of the games that Warlord uh, puts out, some of the new supplements, and basically the new hotness that if you are a Warlord Games fan, you can look forward to listening to now, uh, or playing, I should say. Now, this particular episode, we have a man who has been a prolific author of magazine articles forever for a variety of magazines. But most recently, you would read his work in War Games Illustrated. Now, if you are a Black Powder fan, you would also know him as the author of The Last Argument of Kings, a great supplement. And, well, you would know him as Pete. But uh, Pete Brown, welcome to the Warlords cast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Pleasure having you, mate. How you been? Good, good. Thank you. Yes. Well, we are having you on today to talk about your second big black powder supplement. Now, in the first one, um, why don't you tell us about how your first outing as an author has led to your second? Because uh, we were talking about that a little bit off air, and I think that makes for a good story. Well, it was more about the the, the fact I was commissioned to do Last Argument of Kings, which was basically uh, trying to round up all of the different wars that um, happened in the uh, early and mid 18th century. Mm. So um, we had the Great, Great Northern War, the War of the Spanish Succession, the War of the Austrian Succession and so on. Um, but because that supplement uh, was trying to do all of those wars, we only had some kind of three or four pages uh, eight for each war in the supplement. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ones that was covered was the French-Indian War. But again, there we only had about three or four pages really to cover it. Mm -hmm. uh, so some of the feedback that we got from Warlord customers was that whilst that bit was great, they wanted some more on the, especially on the colonial side of things. Mm -hmm. So um, following on from that, I got chatting to Paul Sawyer and uh, uh, Warlord Games, and we decided we would do some more to do with the French Indian Wars. So that's how this one, uh, Dark and Bloody Ground, came about. Nice. Now, I know that that particular uh, continent and time period is very popular for black powder. I know that the American Revolution supplement or um, <laughs> the American Rebellion, however the uh, Paul Sawyer likes to paint <laughs> it, um, that particular war uh, and supplement was very popular. So um, just going back a couple of years uh, and looking at the French-Indian War, or in this case, the Seven-Year War, um, is, is a natural progression for the game, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it fits very nicely for Black Powder as well. Um, the kind of uh, um, uh, kind of themes mm. that um, Warlord are trying to, to do. And also with a lot of the miniature ranges that Warlord already had. So um, it was a natural progression. They'd done um, Seven Years War figures um, for uh, the Jacobite Rebellion. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had a lot of tricorn um equipped uh, guys anyway mm -hmm. uh, and then of course from the conquest games miniatures range as well with the indians so um so yeah it was it was really was a natural progression both from um paul's point of view from, from the figure ranges that we were producing and then also just because of the popularity of the period and also the feedback that um we were getting from customers saying that this was a period that they wanted to cover so yeah it just seemed to be the obvious way to go Nice. Well, for those of us who, um, well, for those who listen to this and maybe aren't familiar with what the Seven Year War is, um, can you give us a little bit of a background, um, how we get to North America uh, and what is the conflict? Who's involved? 
Well, the, um, the, both the French and the British had uh, colonies uh, already in, mm-hmm. in uh, North America and Canada. Um, and they had been at war before in the uh, War of the Austrian Succession. It, basically, mm-hmm. every time the, the home countries, the French and the uh, English, went to war, um, uh, the, the colonies were, were drawn into it by proxy as well. So they would start fighting uh, as well just to, to follow the mother country. Mm-hmm. But the difference with the French in Indian War um, was that actually they started the Seven Years' War rather than the other way around. So um, the French uh, were well established in Canada, um, but also had a line of forts that that covered all of the wilderness area all the way down to um, the Mississippi. Mm. Uh, and they were trying to they were trying to hem in the um, the, the fledgling American colonies that were the, the, the British American colonies that were there. And what actually brought it all to a head was when the the French tried to establish a, a fort on the Ohio River. Um, and uh, the, uh, the the local governor there, Governor Dinwiddie, he, he didn't uh, like that idea. He sent uh, a, a young lad called George Washington, uh, who was become uh, famous later for all sorts of different things. Never heard uh, of him. To, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to present a, a, a an ultimatum to the French mm-hmm. uh, at, at the fort and say, uh, uh, you know, you've, you've no right to be here. You have to go. These are British lands. You have to move. And the French uh, sent him back with a flea in his ear to say that they weren't going to budge. Um, and as a result of that, uh, George Washington returned then with a with a, uh, a force of provincial soldiers to try and drive them off. And unfortunately, he was he was defeated about the Great Meadows. Um, and then the the governor then wrote back to the king to say, look, we can't put up with this. Uh, the French are, um, are are taking over the Ohio Valley, uh, and so then the uh, the king authorized um, the deployment of, of British troops and um, back to uh, to America, and and the and the war began. Even though Fran- France and England weren't actually at war at the time, uh, the fighting kind of started in in, in America anyway. Now, did um, that war spill over? Because you mentioned um, European wars would then spill back to the colonies. Uh, in this yes. case, did the colony war spill back to mainland Europe? Yes, I mean not not directly. It wasn't the the, the main cause. I mean, there, um, Frederick of Prussia was already playing up, uh, um, establishing his own uh, uh, land claims in Europe, and, mm. and Britain decided to to back uh, him and fund him um, against the French. Uh, and then, as a result of that, the French began to threaten um, King's Land in Hanover, uh, in Hanover, and then obviously, so so they then had to deploy British troops to to, to um, defend those. I think it kind of was just one of those. Um, where the war just kind of snowballed, mm. but to be honest, it, the Seven Years' War has been has been uh, called part of the uh, another Hundred Years' War anyway, because the War of the Spanish Succession, then the War of the Austrian Succession, uh, the Seven Years' War, they're all just kind of the continuations of the, of the same war with Britain and France mm. vying for control uh, in in Europe and and the colonies. So um, it's an interesting period. I find it uh, extremely kind of interesting to see all that politics and the uh, the turn and throwing. Um, uh, of alliances as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and especially with um, once you start getting the indigenous peoples of North America involved as well, um, as you say, those alliances make for some really interesting um, conflicts and uh, the way that people interacted and the forces that fought there. Um, well, let's talk yeah. about... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was only going to say that that's one of the, the, the surprising, well, probably not surprising things that's about the, the entire war is that both France and Britain make land claims um, of, you know, that they own this bit and, and, and they own that bit. Um, and, and neither side actually takes any account of the indigenous peoples that are already living there and the, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and, and the, the fact that the land belongs to them. And both um, 
nations treat the uh, indigenous peoples um, as uh, subject people, um, not so much the French initially, but the British certainly, once they win the French Indian War, they, they immediately start talking about wars against the Indians as rebellions um, and not recognising at all that the uh, the Native Americans are actually independent nations of, uh, of their own. So again, uh, that is an interesting aspect of the um, uh, of the period that we try and bring out in the supplement as well. Mm, absolutely. A- and Native Americans fought on both sides of the French Indian War as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's well, again, it's always this, uh, this uh, European view that we, uh, that was actually to continue all the way into the Plains Indian Wars where the, uh, the European nations tended to think of the Indian nations, um, as being one kind of group of people where if you made a, a, a treaty with one, a chief or leader, um, then then all of the other Indians would be bound by that same treaty and didn't recognise all of the different political um, uh, social mm-hmm. bits and pieces that were going on with all the different tribes. So, um, you know, the, the, for example, a good example of the Cherokee who were on um, uh, the side of the British at the beginning of the war mm. um, and were sending um, Indian war parties to assist uh, against other Indians uh, in the uh, in the West, uh, and then when those tribes were returning back, um, when the Cherokee tribes were returning back to their own lands, having fought for the British, they were ambushed by um, provincial troops um, from Virginia and what have you, who who didn't recognise them as uh, as allies. Who just saw Indian war parties and just attacked them, uh, which then eventually turned the Cherokee against the, the British and led to the war as well. So, um, you know, there is this real feeling from the Europeans that. All the Indians look the same, they're all the same, um, and they don't tend to treat them as independent nations or even recognize the different tribes and who's on whose side. So, All right, well, that's awesome, Pete. Let's let's talk about what's actually in the book itself then, um, because it sounds like, I mean, you clearly know a lot about this time period. Uh, let's talk about how you bring that knowledge to the tabletop for Black Powder. Well, I was start off the supplements by asking what I want from a supplement. So mm. I, I sort of, yeah, I, I write the supplement that I want to read uh, kind of thing. So I, mm-hmm. uh, that's the approach I took to the, to this supplement and having read uh, some of the others, the, particularly the, um, the American War of Independence supplement and, uh, and, and some of the other great supplements have been coming out from, from uh, Warlord. It's easy to look through them and, and take the good bits uh, for other people's ideas. I, I'm very keen to borrow with pride mm. uh, rather than steal. So, uh, yeah, so looking through other supplements and, and seeing how they've uh, done it. So it was really important to give, uh, obviously, a history of the war itself. But um, I tried not to make it a, a history book um, mm-hmm. because really uh, there's some already some great um, books on on the French Indian War um, available. Yeah. Um, so I just didn't want to just do that, just uh, another rerun of, of a history of the period. So we've been very keen to put as much war game information in there as we can, information that war gamers want. Nice. So, yeah, so the, for example, um, we go through all of the uniform detail for um, all the regulars, um, French regulars, the, the French Marines, the colonial troops that were there, um, the militias, uh, the provincial, um, American provincial forces. Um, and there's a lot of, I'd like to think there's a lot of new information that people might not have seen before, um, like all the different uniform 
um, facings and colours um, for the provincial regiments um, for the different years. We've broken it down by year as well. So um, what, what they wore in different years, because as the war progressed, um, some of the provincial forces started out fighting in civilian clothes. Um, but then as more money became available from uh, from Great Britain, then they were able to spend that on, on equipping their, their forces better so that by the end of the war, they're actually fully uniformed. So again, we've um, we've gone broken that down for them. And we've gone through each of the British regular battalions as well, um, who were issued different kits sometimes for the war and, and spoke about each, uh, every battalion that fought there um, is, is detailed and all the uniform details are put in there. So um, it's a great resource for, for people um, if they want to just talk, you know, just go there to, to see how to paint their figures and um, how they would have looked. Yeah, that's fantastic because um, sometimes when you go back to look at, you know, for, for historical uh, painting guides, um, you know, they might give you a particular, you know, one or two particular um, outfits or uniforms that you can follow for a particular conflict. But given, as you say, um, that, you know, the funding and the training and the equipment that shifted over the, the course of the war, um, <laughs> that would be very important in this supplement, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and um, we're able to do it because um, the war was quite small compared with the European um, conflict. Mm. Um, the number of battalions on both sides was, um, wasn't was tiny, but it's doable in, in a supplement that you can provide all of the, those details for every um, regular and, and provincial regiment involved. And, and it is important because uh, war humors like all this kind of thing. They like the the detail of the uniform. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, for Braddock's um, column, when it uh, the, the first British regulars that arrived in America, because it was so hot, they were all wearing wool uh, clothing, um, and so they uh, they were reissued with um, with new waistcoats and trousers, etc., which were all buff coloured because they were all in linen, mm -hmm. um, to help them cope with the hot weather. So, just very basic details like that. It's if you want to collect. Um, uh, figures for the Braddock uh, defeat for the, the fight. You know, it's just interesting that you you paint them in buff um, uh, waistcoats and trousers rather perhaps than the, um, the the standard ones that they would have been issued if they were fighting in Europe. So it's those kind of little details that mm. I think wargamers really enjoy and really enjoy talking about. And oh, I see you've you've painted your troops with the buff colours, etc. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it just makes it interesting uh, and interesting talking points in a war game. Yeah, and it also helps you to individualize your force. It really, you know, helps you to give that, give your force that character that you know. We as war gamers, we love to know all about yeah. our particular armies, and it, it it makes it you know more real and more immersive in the narrative. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, and then you can you can really um, drill down and make make that unit. Oh, you know, this is how they would have looked specifically at this particular uh, campaign in this particular time of the year. So yeah, it's. it's uh, like I say, it's a kind of uh, little bit that uh, wargamers really enjoy. Now, how much of that detail do you dig into with the actual army lists and um, the units in the game as well? Because, I mean, clearly, as you say, the, the, the units that were involved and the way that they interacted with one another changed considerably from the beginning of the conflict to the end. Um, talk us through how then you've reflected that in the rules as well. Well, rather than doing uh, army lists, which um, I'm, I'm not a fan of personally, and um, mm. uh, and also it, they didn't um, it didn't really sit with this period. So what we've done is we've we've taken the war year by year. So nice. we've actually uh, each chapter starts out with a little bit of history of what happened that year. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about some of the the key battles um, and skirmishes that happened, and then we present 
some of those uh, battles and skirmishes then as war game scenarios. Oh, fantastic. Um, so that it's specific to each year so that people can see how, well, how I've imagined that the armies progress. Mm. Um, so you can get, for example, the right at the start of the war, the rangers like... Um, Rogers Rangers mm-hmm. um, or Gorham's um, are very good. They're very, um, they're excellent troop types because um, they're well trained wilderness guys. They've, they've been, um, they, they fight alongside Indians. There's Indians actually in, in amongst the, the Ranger units um, and they're extremely effective. But as the war goes on, there's a, a big recruitment drive into Rangers because obviously the um, British troops recognize that Rangers are great mm-hmm. and they want more of them. Um, but of course, then they they increase in size, sort of tenfold in in the numbers, um, uh, so that by the time you get to the end of the war, actually the rangers aren't as good. Some of the rangers aren't as good because they're just newly raised volunteer units mm. that have never been in, in the wilderness before, um, and they're just called rangers and equipped as rangers, but they're actually not as as good as as the as the guys um, at the beginning of the war. Um, Simply because they, you know, it's always the way. If you increase, um, just because you call people grenadiers or whatever, it doesn't actually make them mm-hmm. <laughs> grenadiers. Um, uh, and Wolf uh, at Quebec, uh, towards the end of the war, highlights this and says that his rangers are rubbish, and he, he says he won't pay them. You know, he doesn't have any time for them. Um, so yeah, so we ref- kind of reflect that change in the troop type uh, through the scenarios and through um, the progression as the years go on, mm. and then we just talk about it as well um, in each different section. Nice. Well, talk us through. Um, where do we start at the beginning? Because um, clearly things kick off. Um, you've you've already talked about how the war started, um, but what can what sort of scenarios can we look forward to from the first part of the book? Well, the rather than just do um, scenario after scenario, which was which were just basically battles. Mm. Um, what we tried to do was make each uh, different. Um, are each scenario different and provide different um, aspects to the game. Um, So at the beginning, we have um, uh, obviously the battle uh, of Braddock's defeat, um, which is basically where the the British column is is wiped out. And we talk about how to play that game whilst it's still making a fun game for both sides, um, because obviously nobody wants to play Braddock in that particular game. You know it's all going to go horribly wrong for right. you. So there's discussion about how to how to play a, a kind of a massacre style game, um, but still make it fun and still make it uh, challenging for both sides. Mm. Um, and then we also talk about small um, actions because one of the main um, features of this war, especially on in the West, was that quite a lot of this um, the encounters were very small battles between. Indian raiding forces and provincial forces that are there defending um, homesteads and forts. That's right. Um, and they, they don't really fit into the big battle idea that people have, that black powder is really all about big battles. Um, but actually we show a, a couple of skirmish scenarios to show how to use black powder um, for very small-scale games, which will involve um, just raids and uh, and fights between um, settlers and, uh, and the Indians and how we can um, change the rules to – well, not change the rules, but adapt the rules to right. – um, to reflect that. And then we go, um, as the war goes on, then to the really big battles like the Battle of Ticonderoga mm-hmm. uh, and obviously obviously Quebec um, and how to fight those as, as black powder battles. And they're obviously yeah, almost European size in the, in the, in the amount of um, uh, regulars uh, and battalions of regulars that are there. So we try to cover all the bases uh, rather than just do sort of it 
battle scenario is we're trying to go well here's a raid here's a um you know here, here's a an ambush scenario here's a, a big battle scenario here's a, a battle on um, um that involves uh, water features etc we try to just mix it up a bit nice well, with a book like this, um, when you've spent so much time working on it, you you've clearly have to have bits and pieces that maybe conflicts or uh, maybe stories that you've, you've read or researched about that you know maybe some authors sort of describe as their favorites. Um, do you have any favorites about this? Uh, any good little anecdotal stories that you'd like to share with, you know, that people might uh, find interesting if they uh, are looking into this conflict? Yeah, it's um, doing all the research for the book. Mm. Um, I was uh, there are not many laughs in it because it's quite um, you know the, the conflict itself was um, quite vicious uh, in some respects, and in the, there was very little quarter asked for or given amongst the the, the forces involved. So um, it can be quite grim sometimes the, um, the the different stories and accounts that are in there. But in amongst all that. Um, it's always the way that there are humorous uh, episodes and things that, that go on. And um, mm-hmm. I've tried to include as many of those as possible within the box text, just to, just to lift the text and also just to give some talking points as people go. Cause I know that um, war gamers enjoy having a bit of a laugh around uh, when they're all gathered playing the game um, reading out these kind of stories and, um, and having a good old laugh about it. So I have put as many of those in as I can. And, um, the one that always makes me laugh, and um, I've put it in the the back here, is um, it was right at the end of the war when the um, the British were closing in on Montreal, um, and uh, they were basically approaching all of the different um, holdout um, places where the French uh, regulars were still hanging on, mm. and just asking them to surrender, and just pointing out the fact that the war was practically over, etc. So one of the texts in here, it's, it's been titled "Your Mother Was a Hamster," <laughs> because of the uh, the famous um, scene from Montreux and then the uh, and the Holy Grail, uh, when the, the the French knights are uh, shouting down at um, King Arthur, because this nice. um, Colonel Fraser he approached uh, he, he approached this fort on his own, just him and a drummer uh, under white flag, um, uh, come out of the woods and approached this uh, this fort and spoke to the um, to the commander there who was a, a really abusive towards him and said, we will never surrender. And, you know, you can do what you like. We're going to hang on here forever. And um, was really uh, quite rude to him. And the, the actual historical text says that um, um, Fraser stormed back into the woods, furious with such treatment. And he was, uh, in inverted commas, determined to storm the place without loss of time. So he immediately then marched his force out of the wood, which consisted of Hundreds of Highlanders who started playing the bagpipes drew all their broadswords. They wheeled the guns out. They um, brought all the provincial forces out. It was immediately obvious that what was going to happen. Uh, and the commander immediately ran the white flag up <laughs> without hanging on. <laughs> so it kind of just you made me laugh. You know, we're going to hold on here forever, and uh, you can do what you do your worst. And then, of course, I, I just as the as he suddenly sees the uh, the nature of the British force that's opposite him. Um, the, the white flag goes straight up. So yeah, it's um, stories like that that uh, are throughout the book. <laughs> yes. That I think just, um, as I say, just fun for people to read and um, and uh, have a laugh about whilst they're playing their games. Yeah, as you say, just like the um, the color section before, it's it's those little stories that you know hook us as gamers and go, ah, oh, I want to build a force around that guy um, or around <laughs> yeah. that conflict, and then that leads us down that awful historical rabbit hole of being like, oh, I can just research this one little thing, and then you know 
days later you look up from your computer or from you know whatever <laughs> else and you go, oh, I suddenly have a, a master's degree in this particular battle. How did that happen? But yeah, well, especially with the, the French Indian War because it it um, there's so much work has been done around it by mm. American historians and and it doesn't take much uh, when you're googling online as you say to disappear down that rabbit hole because mm -hmm. there's just so much stuff available um i don't think anybody looking into the world find uh, find difficulty getting um certainly find out about what happened historically nice well uh what was your particular favorite uh quote-unquote favorite conflict um to write about in this book um i enjoyed most the 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 battles towards the end of the war um, uh, and uh, the Battle of Sint Foy in particular is, is overlooked. It's the mm. it, it's one that you very rarely see um, because it, it's overshadowed by the Battle of Quebec the year before. And mm. um, once once Wolf wins the Battle at Quebec um, and uh, Quebec's taken by the British, um, the British force retreats and leaves a very uh, a garrison there um, in the city to hang on to it over the winter. Um, but because the um, They'd done such a good job of pounding Quebec during the siege that the the houses, uh, you know, are, have lost all their roofs. The, 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 there's there's um, no food in the area, um, and that um, uh, the garrison force um, is really has a hard time over the winter and the, the, what was disease and starvation and what have you. Mm. So at the beginning of the the, the following year, uh, the Fr French force returns to attack Quebec again, and that British force has to march out to um to face it off at the battle of, of Sinfoy. and it's um it's just really interesting to research because i was looking at some of the um the, the british forces and how they would have appeared and having spent a, a winter in quebec and their uniforms were in tatters they were in um you know they had uh, blankets wrapped around them they yeah. were um a lot of the highlanders um had, all of their kit was was pretty much destroyed and they were um, uh, just turning up in, in whatever they could could find, and and some of the Highlanders even marched out of of the hospital um, and trailed behind. They said as as the as the um, forces marched out from uh, uh, Quebec to, to to the battlefield, uh, a load of the um, injured and and sick um, trailed after them from the hospital and and then joined them in the ranks in bits and pieces. So that was most interesting for me because I was just thinking, how is war gamers? You know, um, that would just look fantastic if you had the time and effort yeah. to be able to to present how that army would have looked. And it's almost like a retreat from Moscow type mm. look to that that British army. Um, and the, of course, it was fought in the snow. Um, so again, just as a uh, you know, the, the snow hadn't quite melted, and um, the uh, French that were coming up were still in all their cold weather gear and, mm -hmm. uh, and what have you. It would be a really interesting battle, I think, to do as a demonstration game or as a um, just as a, a just because of all of the different talking points that would be about it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like who are these guys and why do they look so awful? <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I enjoyed um, those kinds of battles—the ones that were you don't hear quite so much about, rather than perhaps the big ones like mm -hmm. uh, like Quebec and Ticonderoga. Well, it's one of those things. I'm I'm a World War II guy, um, big time World War II guy, and I spent a lot of time reading about conflicts that occurred there. Battle of the Bulge is one of my favorites, for example. Um, but um, you know, there's tons of little conflicts in and around those. But I have only visited Europe. And I've only visited Europe, though I've I have been to Europe maybe, God, six, seven times now um, over the years. <laughs> um, I grew up 
you know, not too far from Quebec. And uh, I can very vividly um, think of what the weather would have been like for those poor souls, uh, especially in that time period, if they were trying to live in places that uh, were battle damaged and there wasn't yeah. much food. It uh, it just, it evokes a, a very brutal uh, experience for them even before the battle has even begun. So to have those soldiers come out, especially... Um, you know, especially with the the heroics of people coming out wounded and sick to uh, join the ranks, um, you know, after the rest of the forces marched out. That is such a, uh, you know, cinematic battle that you could portray on the tabletop. And just the, the hobby, the hobby uh, potential in there would be fantastic. And it's very evocative of the period as well, because mm. with the snow uh, and obviously the... Um, the French also had uh, Native American allies mm-hmm. as well as the um, and the British by that stage had light infantry and uh, rangers on their side. So uh, as, a, as a battle, it also encompasses all the different troop types that um, that we we would be using. And of course, the fact it's in the snow and or in the, in the cold weather as well, would just look I think it would just look great. Yeah, absolutely. All those um, bright uniforms or, um, you know, tattered, dark uniforms uh, <laughs> against a white backdrop. Yeah, yeah. I always think um, winter games look great anyway. I'm a big fan of them, but um, uh, yeah, it, uh, especially if you can get it right and get all the you know the icy uh, rivers and things like that, I think they always look really amazing on board. Mm, absolutely. Now, I understand that there is uh, something else at the end of this book that absolutely needs to be talked about. Uh, tell us a little bit about, besides um, the war and the conflict itself, what else have you included in this book? Well, at the, I felt it was important to put uh, a little bit of a campaign system in, um, simply because the a lot of the issues that the commanders in the French Indian War faced were logistical, um, to do with how they kept the men supplied, about um, wagon trains coming back and forwards from the forts to the to the front line to make sure that the troops. Um, had the uh, the supplies they needed, and also um, getting rid of the wounded. The wounded being brought back to the um, the forts. Uh, how would they they be protected? And kinds of issues that um, as war gamers, if we just fight a single scenario um, or series of scenarios, we don't actually ever have to deal with those logistical problems. Mm. Um, but it's actually fighting in the wilderness. It's all logistics, um, and the, ultimately the British victory um, in Canada is a logistical one. It's about how we got. Um, the the troops to Montreal um, through the wilderness, uh, three uh, three different columns, and um, all to arrive at the same time, um, is a logistical victory. Um, it's uh, less about the battles and more about logistics. And I know that's not very sexy for uh, for Wargamer's uh, point of view, but we've included it in the back. We've provided a, a campaign system that is based on the Cherokee War, and it. Um, it's a system where um, the Cherokee themselves are umpire controlled um, and the players uh, take on the role of um, uh, commanders trying to relieve a besieged fort. Um, and, and, and they have to make decision, logistical decisions about should we take wagons, should we take mm. uh, mules uh, or, or pack trains, uh, should we just take what we can carry um, should we have supply bases and essentially how they're going to get from uh, the where they are the fort that they're in um, through the wilderness to relieve this the siege um, this um, uh, and get back again and get back with all the kit um, 
Uh, and obviously there are some battles and skirmishes along the way, but it's it's kind of making them think more about um, the kinds of things that they would need to do if they were running a wilderness campaign. So w- we've put that in, put some suggestions in about how to run it, um, and also then just use that as a basis to design your own mm. um, campaigns uh, going forward. Well, I'm I'm having sudden traumatic flashbacks to my childhood um, playing the Oregon Trail and losing um, guys left, right, and center, families, and dying of dysentery constantly. But um, I mean, as you say, you know, it is not one of those things that's commonly thought about as being, as you say, um, the sexy part of wargaming. However, um, there were, the, I mean just the logistics of coordinating supply chains and getting from point A to point B at that point in time uh, was incredibly important and was, you know, made and had an enormous impact on the way battles were fought and where they were fought and who fought in them. So uh, I think it's really exciting that someone's able to actually take that step back off the battlefield, so to speak, um, yep. and really do the logistics for that. I can't imagine uh, that would have been easy to uh, to plan and write, um, but God, it sounds interesting. Yeah, and, and I, I, I thought it was absolutely essential to put something of mm. that nature in because um, it, it just controlled... I mean, the whole French strategy was to try and... Uh, uh, you know, have what they called La Petite Guerre, the, the small war, to try and have guerrilla war mm-hmm. uh, in the British rear. For simply that reason, to try and stop the supplies getting through, to, to um, hold up uh, and, and tie down British forces in defending settlers and homesteads and forts in the rear so that they couldn't be brought to the front. Um, and, and that was so much part of the French strategy for the war um, was to attack the logistical um, support that the, the main armies had that I think to ignore it is ignoring a huge part of not only just the French strategy, but of the war in general. So yeah, we, we have to include something like that. I think we can't just go and have battle, you know, three linked scenarios and then whoever wins those is wins the war. I think that just takes such a huge part of the war away. Um, so yeah, it's in there. And, and as I say, it's just a basis. It's not overly complicated. Um, it's a basis from on which people can build. Yeah, but that's that's a fantastic. I mean, as you say, you can link that with skirmishes and smaller battles, and then that will lead into your bigger battles. Um, I know that uh, as far as the American Revolutionary War or the War for Independence, uh, I know that there were elements of that for different parts of that war, uh, not nearly as much as it was for you know Seven Year War, but um, just. The, it is important and it is not the type of war like in Vietnam you couldn't you know towards the end you have with the Tet Offensive for example you have larger scale battles but to ignore all the smaller battles before that wouldn't do the conflict justice no absolutely absolutely and as I say it's um my view and again it's not you know it's not by any means the the, the, the sexy view of the war but if you look at Amherst who was the British commander at the end of the war mm. um he was a logistical commander. He he won it through making sure that his troops uh, were supplied, that they they had the the right boats and uh, and um, canoes, etc., to get from A to B, um, and were able to keep moving towards Montreal despite all the French efforts to stop them. And it, and it was very much a logistical um, war. Uh, and so, yeah. as I say, it's not that it's hard to reflect in war games, uh, but I think it's important to do something around it, just so that we can acknowledge that that, that that's the case. 
Yeah, especially since, I mean, this is the frontier. This isn't established European cities where you've had, yeah. you know, Roman roads for hundreds, if not you know, a thousand years. <laughs> um, we're talking about, you know, the North American frontier back in the days when yeah, it was very frontier, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of the, the roads, although they're, they're, they're mentioned as roads in the communications, are little more than, than hunter's trails. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and the British Army spends so much of its time chopping down trees and, and, and building uh, roads and, uh, and blockhouses and things along the way. It's, um, they spend much, much more of their time uh, as laborers than they do as, uh, as soldiers. Yeah. Well, I mean, Canada and that part of the northeast of the United States in the 1750s wasn't exactly fully developed. <laughs> I mean, there were, of Definitely course, there not. were settlements and there were, you know, large urban areas. Um, but everything in between, yeah. as someone who yeah, lives in Australia, it, it <laughs> not always a lot of people in between. No, absolutely. And, and again, it, it was just something else that we had to to address in the supplement was mm. that nearly all of our battlefields are going to have trees on them, um, woods of some description. There was very, very few um, uh, actions where there are no trees. In mm. fact, I can't think of any in the book. So you have to, uh, we've had to have a good look at um, the, the rules around fighting in woods and uh, and in using woods on the battlefield. Um, and we have had to expand on those uh, within there because again, uh, it is wilderness. It's 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 all um, trees and uh, and, and overgrown um, uh, areas. So again, we've had to be. Uh, there is a section in the book as well about terrain and and how best to represent it uh, and what rules are best to use um, and how we might adapt them to to suit this um, this style of warfare. Mm, excellent, nice. Um, well, I understand that. From, well, from what I've seen, the photos for this book are fantastic. Um, just the models. Uh, and as you can, it's funny you mentioned the uh, trees are in every conflict. Now that I recall the pictures I've seen from the book, they all have green in them, a lot of green. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I understand there's a lot of great art in there besides the photos. Yeah, we were lucky enough to get um, the artist Randy Steele um, to allow mm. us to use some of his work uh, in the uh, some of his images in the book. Uh, and the, we're big fans anyway, because I've looked at um, a lot of the images that he had online and uh, it, we approached him to say, is there any chance we could use some of these because they're so good? Um, and uh, yeah, he's, he's he very kindly allowed us to use the, the um, images in there, the artist's work, and they are brilliant. They really are um, evocative of, of what it must have been like to be fighting in the um, uh, in Woodland at the time. And there's one particular one on page 65 called The Fall Forest Fight. Um, which is one of my absolute favorites. And it just shows a lot of the light coming through the trees and um, it, it's like an ambush is happening and, and, and just shows the confusion that must have been happening uh, amongst the British soldiers at the time. So he really captures the feel for the period. Um, and also we had Eric uh, Trauner's um, uh, models as well, his dioramas of um, Iroquois settlements and, uh, and Native Americans um, uh, in, uh, you know, of the time. And they're great as well. Um, and just as well as the, some of the great photography work that the guys at Warlord have done. Oh, yeah. Um, they've really done a good job. So, yeah, we're, I'm, I have to say I'm really pleased uh, when I got my copy of the book in through. I was really pleased with how it's turned out. And um, it's just a good coffee table book just to have or just for, um, for Wargamers to sit and flick through because it just looks great. 
Nice. Well, I I always ask this question when um, authors come on and they're talking about um, you know the book that they've spent so much time working on. Uh, what force uh, in particular have you have you built up a force um, from this book? Ha- did you have things already? Has this caused you to augment what you already owned? Um, what? Tell us a little bit about your personal um, collection with the with the forces in this book. Well, originally I'd collected um, uh, my uh, tricorn wearing British for um, Jacobite Rebellion. Mm. Um, and that was fine. And then I, I find myself just buying more and more kind of um, Brits in tricorns. And uh, um, and I thought, well, why don't I base some of these up to be skirmish? And this is going back before I'd even, when I was writing Last Argument of Kings kind of period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... You know, I thought, well, French Indian Wars, that would be good as well. And the, the, one of the advantages of French Indian Wars is that you can start small. You don't have to jump in um, with the, go straight to the big battles of because um, skirmishes, you know, so you can just buy a few figures and uh, a few rangers, a few regulars and what have you, and then pin them up, see how you get on, um, which is how I started. And then, of course, you, you disappear, as war gamers mm-hmm. always do, disappear down a rabbit hole. And, once you buy some Native Americans, and um, the ones that Conquest do are, are absolutely fantastic because they make differentiations between the different tribes. Um, so they do try, rather than making a generic Native American figure, they uh, have tried to, to do different tribes within them. So, of course, that means that once you buy one, you got to buy, mm-hmm. oh, well, maybe just get some from this tribe. And then, um, so then before I knew it, I bought a load of militia for the French, <laughs> um, uh, well, the French regulars. And then, yep. uh, so now I'm in the position that I can, I can pretty much do Quebec. Um, and, uh, which is, and yeah, certainly have a good crack at Ticonderoga, which is one of some of the biggest battles that are there. And certainly when we were play testing for the, um, for the, for the supplement and doing the, um, play testing, the scenarios, I was able to, to do the, the full battle of Quebec. So of course it's just, <laughs> it reached the stage where your collection has kind of taken over, you know, from you started out as a skirmish has ended up as a, um, practically the whole war <laughs> being I, collected. So. I can't commiserate yeah. at all with anything that you're saying there. I've, I've never done that. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's got to be exciting, though, because, um, you know, having this book and having it, you know, having spent so much time researching it to have the forces to to play the games um, that you wrote about that. That's got to be amazing. Yeah. Well, also, it, it means that I'm when I'm writing about how, how best to represent your troops and how best to paint them and things, it, it's from experience, not, uh, you know, not sort of thinking how I might do it. It's how I've actually done it. So, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 nice to be able to write that, from that. But uh, but also, it again, just disappearing down the rabbit hole, it, um, the Warlord guys are, are producing some canoes now and the other, other manufacturers do. Um, sloops and small um, bateaux and things for the period. So I'm actually, I'm actually at the moment collecting um, lots of waterborne stuff so I can do some of the um, uh, the actions that happened on the, on the edge of the lakes and uh, things like Sabbath Day Point, the, the battle there, where there were lots of canoes involved. Um, so uh, I just think that water features within games look great. So I'm maybe going to disappear down that rabbit hole for a little bit now and um, and, and in a game like that. So. So are those water? Oh, that big. Okay. So are those water uh, craft? If that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, are in the rules in this book, or is that something that it, is more of a terrain feature? No, we've we've included rules for waterborne um, 
uh, not conflict on, mm. on the water because there wasn't actually that much uh, ship to ship type action right but um but you do see uh, quite a few instances where perhaps indian troops uh, are landed at the rear of british troops um, mm-hmm. by canoe um or where um you know a river feature f- is on board and the troops are traveling up and down it uh, in canoe or bateau um so we've included some rules some suggestions and, and ideas to include those um, as well as some of the bigger sloops um because there were, even at quebec and places like that the british navy was there in quite um uh, quite large numbers so again it'd be a shame not to um, use some of those uh, and also just because the miniatures are great and uh, they look Absolutely. fantastic so, um, uh, and if you you know uh, when I've been at Partisan and some of the bigger shows and you see a, a display game a demonstration game there that's included any kind of even small ships um, it just was really eye-catching and it looks looks brilliant so it's, it's a shame um, not to include them in the uh, in our game so we've put some suggestions in there as well as how best to do that. Yeah, because canoe um, movement was something that, you know, as someone who grew up in North America, I when I think of the French-Indian War, I think of, um, you know, people being, you know, sneaking about in canoes uh, and running through the wilderness. And, you know, to, to sort of not have that, now that you've mentioned it, would, I don't think, uh, I think it'd be a shame. And I think, I'm really glad that you put that in there because it really does, it is really evocative of the time period and the conflict. Yeah, and again, if you look at, I mean, most people's um, uh, reference for the French Indian Wars in popular culture is the Last of the Mohicans yes. movie, um, uh, and again, it, you know, the the escape from the uh, uh, the Fort William Henry massacre, of, uh, running down, getting into the the canoes, etc. We've mm-hmm. in our Fort, Fort William Henry scenario, we've included that kind of option as well, so that you you can have the Last of the Mohican character figures, uh, you know, escaping from the um, from the attack. That's all included in the scenario. Um, so yeah, and it, 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 I think as well in those images from that movie that the, you know, the canoe kind of chase, etc., was so um, it looked so great. Uh, yeah, we thought, yeah, we've got to put something like that in. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, man, Peter, it sounds like you've really put some, <laughs> some an incredible amount of time and effort into this, both uh, in completing your own forces and playing the scenarios and you know planning it out and writing it for us to enjoy. Um, mate, I I I was. I, I, I'm feeling the the distinct urge to go buy this book right now, um, <laughs> which, you know, ugh, do I need another Wargaming book? But uh, I think the safe answer is yes. Um, you always need another Wargames book. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I, I'm not sure I mentioned the name at the beginning, uh, which is remiss of me. Of course, we are talking about the newest supplement for Black Powder, uh, Dark and Bloody Ground, which is a fantastic title. And this, uh, again, I think is evocative to the, the conflict in general. Um, and it comes with a brand new, um, like all good Warlord books, it comes with a particular model. And is that a Mohican? Yeah, it's um, it's an Indian scout. And uh, I have to say, I am incredibly pleased with this miniature. Um, when we were discussing um, the the free figure and what it should be. Um, we went through a lot of different options, whether it should be a ranger, should be a, you know, a British regular or whatever. And, and of course, the Native Americans are unique to this period. So uh, are unique to, you know, to this part of the Seven Years' War. So mm. um, we decided it had to be a Native American figure. Um, and I just think the sculptor's done an awesome job on this because yeah. he, um, you, you just get the, the whole sense of him being a scout, of him looking through, you know, the trees, whatever, at the, um, 
uh, at the advancing uh, enemy. So, yeah, I think they've done a really good job and it, it looks brilliant. So I'm pleased with it. Yeah, half crouching over sort of a rock outcropping, um, wearing yeah. a British red coat. Oof, it pops. Yeah, yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah, so, I mean, and yeah, and you can either have him as, as either that's a gift that he's been given because he works for the British, or mm. it's something that he's uh, he's taken from uh, trophy from a dead uh, soldier. You see, so again, it can work either way. And um, I think however you base him, you know, when you when you come to paint and base him, you're putting some foliage etc in front of the rock so again just to hide him that a little bit more mm. i think it looks really good and and some of the uh, uh the, the paint the way he's been painted in the book and, and he appears um, early on in the uh, in the supplement um they, they've done a really good job i think he's um on page six uh, and they've painted him up and, and i think he just looks brilliant yeah i mean as you say putting a little foliage in there to to make him sort of blend in like he's supposed to uh, get yeah. in the conflict, but looking at that yeah. model in the giant, you know, in the, in the, in the very red coat, uh, you know, it, you don't, you don't want to hide such a beautiful figure, but it also kind of sticks out at the same, I'm going to be sneaky yeah, yeah. in my very red coat. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, well, uh, Pete, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about for this book that, uh, you would like to tell the listeners, uh, or no, no. I don't think so. No, I think um, yeah. Other than the fact is, say we're just really pleased with how it's turned out, and I, and I hope um, people enjoy it um, because, as I say, there it, it was written for war gamers, and it has got everything. Um, you know, I've written the book here that uh, that I want to read, um, mm. and I hope uh, people uh, yeah, get as much from it um, as I hope they do. Because <laughs> yep. as I say, they um, I enjoyed writing it, so uh, so I hope they enjoy reading it. Well, that's always important. If you have a book that's written for Wargamers by a Wargamer and is the book that that author wants to see, um, you always get that, 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 that eye for detail and playability that just makes a supplement fantastic to uh, put down on the tabletop. So, Pete, thank you so much for your effort, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome talking with you today. And you, thanks very much for having me. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning in. Uh, I know it's been a couple weeks since our last show. Um, we do have more coming up, a lot more. Uh, there are some pretty exciting supplements coming out uh, for the Korean War, uh, for D-Day, Bolt Action. I mean, you name it, there's a lot coming from Warlord. So stay tuned, because more is coming. Um, now, I have been asked recently, how can we give feedback how if if you are listening right now how can you talk to me the host of this show um to make sure that your opinions about what we should cover um or feedback about the show can be heard um if you go to facebook and you type in cast dice c-a-s-t-d-i-c-e um, you will find my personal hobby progress page um and the page for the other podcast that is on this podcast network. Um, if you message that page, I am the only person that responds to it. My name is Brad, and I look forward to hearing from you. Um, a few people have been uh, messaging Warlord, and it's being passed on. Um, it is just probably easier if you contact me directly, uh, if you would like a timely response. Uh, but for those people who have taken the effort uh, and made the time, thank you very much for reaching out. Um, I think we've... Uh, accommodated as many of your uh, requests as we could. Uh, and I look forward to hopefully uh, accommodating the rest in the near future. Uh, and no matter what, though, podcasts don't cost money. Uh, 
The fact that you've taken the time, though, to listen uh, is appreciated. Uh, so thank you. On behalf of Warlord Games, I am Brad saying good night.